What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you can visit cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, an ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I also help run Delphi Ventures. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Jake, who is an absolute pioneer in the space for a long-form podcast focused on NFTs. Jake, how's it going? It's going great. Um, thanks for having me on, Tom. I'm super excited for this one. Totally, man. It's funny. This week, I was looking through my tweet history a bit, looking for an old tweet. And I realized one of my first crypto experiences was, was an event you hosted back in the day on like the Constantinople ETH fork or something. It's, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. That was, we, we would run the, the rabbit hole talks back in New York. I think, I think we might start those up again, actually. Um, they were fun. Uh, I miss them. Yeah, yeah. COVID definitely put a dent in all of the, all of the meetings, as you know. Uh, yeah, but for sure. Back. Well, Jake, tell us a bit about yourself, man. You have quite the story career in crypto. You know, give us your background. Tell us a bit about CoinFund before we jump into the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I, I, I've, uh, I've been in this space for, for a long time. This is the seventh full year of investing in blockchain. My background is mathematics and computer science. I had a 10-year career in technology. Um, mostly in hedge funds, but also in pure tech at, at Amazon and in, in some really interesting um, kind of private company research contexts. Um, and then since this podcast is about NFTs, I just want to say like NFTs has definitely been a passion vertical for me. Um, I've been interested in art all my life. I've always been pretty creative. Um, from, young, from a young age, I've, I've done creative coding and I learned how to code when I was 14. And so some of the very first things I've coded were actually things like games and um, something bordering on, on, on art. Um, and so as an investor, CoinFund, where 
who is a, a crypto investor um, and, and has a pretty broad mandate, we've actually been quite early to NFTs. So some of the things that we've done is we, um, we did the, the DAP around back in 2018. We funded one of the first open platforms where anyone could mint um, an NFT in 2019, which was called Additional. We are pre-seeders of Rarible.com and super excited about Rarible uh, protocol and we'll talk about that. And what we're seeing you know, the, today on Saturday is this kind of dramatic um, playing out of the thesis that using DeFi, you know, NFTs can actually become a very active, very liquid asset class. And so we have a number of investments along that front, including fractionalization companies, lend, NFT lending, and something that I'm personally super excited about, which is uh, Upshot. It's a, it's a mechanism for valuing NFTs in a decentralized manner. Um, so that's a little bit about what we've done in the space. Oh, I love and that I should chain. say one, one more thing. I'm personally very involved. Like I'm a member of Flamingo Dow. I run first edition.xyz, which is the NFT art gallery since 2019. Uh, it has a pretty interesting collection. Um, and you know, I, I'm I'm in all the kind of following the latest uh, NFT crazes these days. Yeah, no, I I saw your you go so deep. I mean, you you've created your own artwork. I think I may own a couple pieces or or not. I gotta check, but uh, it's exciting. But before we dive into everything you've mentioned, let's just start at the basics. What exactly is an NFT? Like, what is the technical specifications for it? You know, is it a token? Is it not? I hate playing dumb here, but we got to start at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, well, let me start, you know, I'm a math guy, so I like, you know, taking the abstract and then working our way into examples. But broadly speaking, what are we doing in blockchain? We're doing digital assets, right? And when digital assets came onto the scene, what does that mean? We've mostly been, you know, socialized to digital assets through fungible assets, through things like cryptocurrencies, tokens, things that look like stocks, things that have token supplies with monetary policies. Um, but actually, if you look out into the world, uh, probably most assets are not fungible. They're, they're all kind of unique. You know, every piece of real estate is unique. Um, every car is in a different level of, let's say, disrepair, right? And so it might be worth different amounts of money. Art is not the same. And what you know what NFTs are, what NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's the on-chain embodiment of what a non-fungible asset is. When people talk about NFTs sort of in the mainstream or in the crypto mainstream, they tend to equate NFTs with digital art or digital collectibles or like a punk or a crypto kitty or something like that. But what I think an NFT is, is, is actually a very broadly applicable piece of infrastructure into which you can fit the concept of a non-fungible asset. So what does that mean you know, in the, in the crypto world? And what does that mean in the real world? Well, in the real world, it precisely means things like real estate and, um, you know, and, and the title of, to your car. But the way that the space is developing is that we're starting with digital assets and we're starting with these different types. We're starting with digital art, digital collectibles, digital in-game assets like axes. And what you can do is you can extrapolate and say, well, what, you know, what other kinds of digital content are there? 
And there's actually tons, right? There's movies, there's music, there's design assets like fonts and stock photos um, and icons. There are um, financial you know, instruments that are non-fungible like options contracts and so on and so forth. And so we realize that we can, uh, we can actually fit many different kinds of digital goods, digital content and even financial assets and property into this construct. So what NFTs are to me are, you know, the financial framework for working with those kinds of assets. Mo and, then, and then today we mostly understand them and, it's, and we have a very important lesson in there, but we mostly understand them as sort of social cultural assets. That's an awesome abstract kind of way to think about it. I, I really like that. And I guess, do you think that it's kind of hard for me to think people understanding your depth of it versus just the fun, exciting kind of, let me buy a punk, let me buy a me bit. Do you think people are going to understand what you're discussing? Like, how do you get people up that learning curve? When, when do we actually get to what you're talking about here, where basically anything can be an NFT? I think people understand it very intuitively, very viscerally when they participate, right? So when you see that, collectible or piece of art um, or, 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 or something, or, you know, maybe, maybe it's not just artistic, maybe, maybe it's financial, but when you see that sort of connection that you're drawing between yourself and that asset, like that's what NFTs, you know, sort of abstractly are, right? They are, the, the, the really terse way of summarizing it is that they're the financialization of cultural assets. What does cultural assets mean? It means things like art, things like movies and music and um, symbols, right? Or brands or intellectual property or Disney characters, or just the idea that you like a certain TikTok influencer. What we have found using NFTs is the digital embodiment of that connection, of that feeling. But it's more than that. It's the financialization of that. It's it's like once you have it as an asset, you could put it to work. It's wealth. It's something that you can use as collateral. It's something that you can send to other people. What we're seeing now is a lot of fractionalization, meaning many different people can own pieces of the same artwork. Imagine like, you know, you could own a piece of the Mon Mona Lisa, and, and we should talk about what owning means, right? That, that is its own rabbit hole. But to answer your question, I think, I think people very intuitively understand it. And as soon as they get these assets into their hands and we give them the right tools to treat them in a financial way, a lot of people will do that. And they're already doing it. I definitely want to talk more about fractionalization later on. But I, I guess you bring up a really interesting point is in that people can take financial use cases of their NFTs. But I guess the question for me is like, it's easy to see that in a DeFi sense. Let me fractionalize something, get liquidity, you know, maybe let me use this collateral for a loan. But do you actually envision NFTs being used in more web two-ish content ways? Like, you know, let me lease out my NFT for a movie or, you know, uh, for an appearance or a song. Like, do you think that they'll touch the way the traditional world, the way content does today? Or do you think that these are mainly going to be 
more financially used in nature. There's definitely movements here of different views of, of the world, right? So the other day I watched, you know, a crypto whale battle a DAO in an auction, right? And this is really not something that <laughs> happens too often, Doesn't. you know, and, 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 the, uh, and the DAO was being crowdfunded in real time as they were like battling. And this is not something that you see in the real world, right? But at the same time, you have a lot of mainstream attention on NFTs. You have absolutely um, a ton of, you know, influencers and brands looking at it. I've personally been on calls with, you know, consumer tech companies who have consumer goods divisions and are very, very interested in what might be the application of NFTs to consumer goods. And digital makes a lot of sense, you know, in a COVID context, in a context where provably digital goods are creating more engagement uh, between customers and, and, um, and issuers. Um, we are, uh, we're, we're launching an NFT strategy called Metaversal. And part of that strategy is doing a studio where, you know, Metaversal is working with different brands on how to tokenize, um, the IP that is, that already exists. And so in short, I think, I think there, there are movements to tokenize what's already out there and kind of bring them into, like a more modern digital media and a more model, modern way of interacting um, with customers, uh, which has a lot of promise from a marketing perspective. And there's also a movement to create just like absolutely new things. And so when you, when you see things like avatar series and, and what that is, is, you know, something like crypto punks or bored apes um, or nouns, right? Uh, it's, a set of non-fungibles, but they but they sort of share uh, a provenance, right? They're part of the same kind of collection. They're the same kind of thing, but they're not exactly the same. And that is almost something in between, right? A fungible asset and a, and a purely like one of one, you know, non-fungible asset. So the things that we're seeing being innovated on, I would say, is actually more in these like series categories than, uh, than others. And one of the core themes of innovation there is just liquidity. It's like we're finding different ways of giving these series um, prices. I, that's a really good point. And, you know, let's bring it back to, you know, before we go into like the future of where they're going, let, let's go back to the people creating NFTs, right? There's many different kinds, there's pure artwork, you know, status symbols, you know, I kind of think of punks in that basket. There's, you know, potentially revenue generating NFTs, like, you know, rare axes you can battle with, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's obviously different types of NFTs I want to talk about, but how do you think about like early communities here? Like everyone knows like punks has a community. Everyone knows like Axie has a community, but, but how do you like, how do you investigate an early NFT community? It seems kind of hard because yeah, you might be dealing with one creator or one artist or, you know, they need to take that to the next level. Like, how do you dig into that? How do you judge that? Yeah, this is, this is such an important point because it's not, it's not even just a point about NFTs. It's a point about digital assets broadly. And maybe we should actually just start there. Right. Yeah. So, so when, when Bitcoin came around, it showed us this really profound thought that we, that most of us, right, have really never had in our minds or, or even had any interest in thinking about, 
which is that the dollar is a consensus among you know millions and millions and billions of people in the world that this like green piece of paper backed by that government is valuable. And when Bitcoin came around, it showed us that like it really brought that into focus simply by being like the second thing that you could compare to it. And what it showed is that this idea of consensus um, and that consensus of course emanates from communities of people looking at the same thing is just an incredibly valuable thing, right? Because it creates the possibility of a currency or, you know, or an asset or an asset supply. And so when you go from, you know, fungible assets to non-fungible assets, very like counterintuitively, that thesis is actually being played out in a much more dramatic way. And here's what I mean. The, the way that an NFT aggregates consensus and community is just dramatically a more powerful mechanism than the way that a cryptocurrency aggregates consensus and community. And there's something really human about that. There's something like really human about taking a picture of a cute cat, making it go viral. But that like silly activity aggregates, I think, like measurably more consensus and community than, than the other thing. And the way that I thought experimented this the other day was I said, like, basically, if you, if you think about it, like crypto punks or whatever, you know, iconic NFT series will probably survive the complete destruction of its base layer. Right, like if Ethereum starts to lose market share, like I don't think CryptoPunks will lose value. I think I think the community around CryptoPunks will move it somewhere else. It, it's a really interesting point. I mean, is it just because the hurdles and the market potential is potentially larger? Like it's just it's just so much easier to understand a CryptoPunk than it is to understand Ethereum's move to proof of stake and the future of yeah. sharding and Optimism zk rollups. Like. Is it just because the target market is larger and you have an easier path to social adoption? Or is it because, I mean, I think we could argue that obviously Ethereum and Bitcoin obviously have, you know, more economic protection, I think. But yeah, how, how do you kind of view that hurdle for social adoption? Because it's obviously way easier, but it's, I don't know if it's as high of a, it's obviously, I don't think it's as, like, I don't think punks have the same level of potential as Ethereum, but to your point, it's way easier for people to understand it. Yeah, so I think, I think that exactly. So I think like, I'm not saying that punks would, you know, compete with Ethereum or something like that. I'm just saying that, that the social consensus around punks probably has more people who understand, to your point, who understand yeah. what punks are. Then like, think about the number of people who like understand what punks are and can appreciate punks. And the number of people who can judge whether, um, Ethereum 2 is a scalable infrastructure for blockchain. Right? It, like, it's kind of wild though, because to your point, like I totally agree, but punks aren't, you know, well fractionalized now. I mean, they're, they're being fractionalized, but there's still only 10,000. And to see the amount of people that understand it beyond that number is pretty crazy at this point, because not everyone around the world has economic buy-in, but there is, you know, 
pretty strong social buy-in around the world, which is kind of interesting yeah. that they're disconnected economically, but they understand it socially. So, so I, wanted, I wanted to answer kind of your, your question before, and, and maybe that's a good segue, segue into um, how, how to judge communities, right? But, but the idea I think is that we're in this evolutionary process in blockchain where we're constantly experimenting. And, and every once in a while, like we hit this like zero to one moment or this step change, like it's like, right? And then, and then we're like on this new- And we're not and, sleeping all night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll tell you a couple of the moments that historically have happened. So Bitcoin came along, obviously, that was like the first one. But then as soon as Bitcoin came along, you had Litecoin and Dogecoin, and you had, you know, 1000, almost 2000, like replicas of the same thing. Right. And then like Ethereum came along and we're like, oh, okay, we're doing smart contracts. Now we just we just leveled up, right. And then suddenly everyone started rolling, you know, uh, dApps and and competing smart contract platforms and platforms that work faster and had more security or less security or scalability interoperability right and so then we entered um, there like in the same sense the idea of digital assets as things that are almost like quasi-conscious that like go out there as as memes right as as communities and try to aggregate attention cryptocurrency proved to be a good way of aggregating attention. But now, like zero to one, and now NFTs are a provably better way of aggregating attention. And I think that's exactly right. I think more people, like I'm saying this in retrospect, and it's obvious in retrospect, but in the summer of 2020, right, everyone was looking at the inflection of DeFi. It was saying, there we go, guys, like we're about to hit like mainstream adoption. Here it is, you know, everything's going up. We're now $2 billion in DeFi. By the way, we're like over like $100 billion in DeFi now. <laughs> Happy um, quick. Yep. It was like a year ago, right? Um, and so like, but the reality is that most people out there in the world, they're not tech finance nerds like us, right? They don't want to trade options all day or, or decentralized derivatives or like provide liquidity, even though they should, right? They, they should absolutely do this, but... Um, I'm just saying that it speaks much more to them. Like it's much more understandable to say, oh, you know, like crypto punk is a status symbol or, um, you know, this is a piece of artwork in a limited edition that you can own in a digital wallet. Like right? that experience in retrospect has probably converted vastly more users than any of the other things. Um, and that's why Kind of surprisingly, early mainstream adoption uh, of blockchain technology is literally proceeding on the like on the back of digital art or digital collectibles. But you bring up a really interesting point, and I totally agree. Like, I don't think traditional, like the traditional global user base, cares about which per project is launching on which L two and you know stuff like that. It's yeah. just too hard. But to your earlier point, you started the pod with kind of this idea of the financialization of NFTs. And it's kind of funny because DeFi is getting so complex and NFTs are so simple, but do you think that in your, you know, NFT financialization thesis that eventually we're going to hit that kind of same obstacle where, you know, the DeFi use cases for NFTs get so complex, or I guess, how do you think about NFTs playing out? Cause right now it's very simple, but 
you know, a couple months, a couple of years from now, people could be doing some very complex stuff with them. And we might kind of get back to that same point. I, well, I think the difference is that the people who are innovating in the NFT space are more of the flavor of the kind of people that are in the NFT space. And so that's more heavily weighted toward uh, creators, artists, people who are in tune with culture. Um, and it's almost funny because within you know, crypto native audiences, it's almost like the DeFi people have become the Wall Street suit boomers <laughs> and the nft people are kind of running around like innovating right now um you know which is not to detract from anything that the oh it's funny it's true yeah <laughs> um, we're, we're becoming the banks again and now everyone else is having fun the only point i'm making is that there's definitely a cultural you know uh distance between like the core of the nft community and the core uh DeFi community and and i think that actually if you look at the history here it goes all the way back to like new media art. I remember like new media art was all the rage in New York City in like 2013, but it's actually coming even earlier from people, you know, when the internet came along in like the, the late nineties for artists, right? They realized they could use like these visual media and these weird artistic people who, you know, have always tried to combine art and technology are the people who were basically the first non-tech, non-finance audience of blockchain technology. And they're the people who like started trading NFTs early and supported super rare and, you know, kind of helped to, to, to bring this, you know, area into critical mass, which only in February of 2021 has, has really like spilled out into the mainstream and was on Saturday night live. So there's such a strong like community aspect to this, like that stretches back 30 years, probably. Um, and, and, and that maybe that brings us back to your point, like, how do we how do we find communities? So I, I think like, what nouns DAO is doing speaks very interestingly to this idea of community building, and your point about complexity. So what nouns DAO is, is a version of CryptoPunks. But now it's putting in a distribution mechanism kind of a more much more complex one than CryptoPunks. CryptoPunks, I think, were just kind of sold on the website one time. Um, and then what NounsDAO is doing is they auction off, they generate every day a new noun. A noun is a special generative NFT character that they've created. And every day there is an auction. And once that auction is won by someone, the ether uh, that is won is placed into a DAO. And the holder of the noun gets a vote in the DAO. Wow. This goes on until infinity. I'm on the website right now. It's noun 14's current bid is 78 ETH. That's wild. <laughs> and right. the treasury it's, has, you know, over 1500 ETH in it. That's pretty wild. I've never even heard of this until you mentioned it. So, so, so until the first, so within the first 10 nouns, two of them, no, excuse me, three of them are owned by DAOs. And starting with noun 11, there is a party DAO every day. If you don't know what party DAO is, it's a kind of a social crowdfunding platform, which is compatible with these noun auctions. And you can go and try to, you know, bid every day as part of a crowd. And this is what I was saying before, you know, we, we were watching in noun 11, we were watching a whale battle, you know, a decentralized crowdfunding in real time for, for, for winning this auction. So the, the, the DAO won in, uh, the DAO folks won in, 
now number 11. They lost now number 12 and they lost now number 13. So I think they're feeling like they should, they need to get out more um, and they need to like build their community a little bit more. So what makes a great community? It's projects that can aggregate community and social capital quickly. And what Nouns DAO is specifically designed to do is to, um, is to aggregate that attention, aggregate that social capital, aggregate that community around it. And that's very differentiating from other just like, you know, avatar series that are pretty static that are out there. The crazy part about Nouns DAO though is, I mean, they're gonna auction off one forever. I mean, is there, I guess it comes into question like, and I meant to talk about this a little bit earlier, but the whole scarcity versus one of one NFT idea is definitely an interesting one, especially with fractionalization. Do you, I mean, just bring it back to noun. Do you think that people might get a little weirded out if they're buying noun number, you know, 1 million? Well, I mean, it's going to take a long time to get there, but you know, it'll, it'll take so, years to hit it. Yeah. The pumps so, level. So it's a, it's a, it's a super interesting crypto economics and it's very illustrative, right? So, so a lot of people and myself included, when I saw this, I was like, wait a minute. So, you know, so the first guy paid like 600 ether, you know, to get now number one, but then like the 10th guy is going to pay like one ether or something, or, or the hundredth guy is going to pay one ether or the thousands guy is going to pay like five cents or something, but they get one vote just like the first guy. So doesn't that mean that the first people are being diluted every day as people come in? And in terms of on-chain governance, that is absolutely true. They are being diluted. Yeah. But in terms of overall government governance, that is not true. Because the first 10 nouns will aggregate vastly more social capital than, uh, than, the, than the people who came in later. So right, right away, as the first 10 nouns were released, you start to get like fan art around each noun. There's like all these... NFT creators who've, who've, uh, who put out NFTs that sort of like, you know, they're just kind of derivative works that are tributes or homages to, to these nouns. And so the first 10 nouns become like way more iconic, right, than the thousandth noun. And the people who hold the first 10 nouns, by definition, have been there three years longer or so, right, than the thousandth guy. And so they're much more, you know, longstanding members. They're they're um, they're much more parodied and and you know, and and, and, um, and and so what I actually think happens is that despite the fact that they're diluted on chain, they have way more influence in that community. It, I mean, the funny part is it would take years to hit the level of actual nouns that punks have because you know, three hundred sixty-five a year. It would take, you know, it would take. 30 years or maybe less. Um, but to your point, if push comes to shove, what you're saying is that even though, you know, users 10 and beyond technically hold control, the social capital and control of the first 10 probably end up driving the decisions. W what would be the correlation there to punks? Would that be like the zombie punks kind of, you know, showing the way on what people want to do or, or what would be the comparison? I mean, there, there isn't I one because it's technically different, but. Zombie punks are just kind of like, like members of the series with rare features. Mm -hmm. And so in, in that sense, yes, it's like, you know, the first nouns are sort of the rarest in some sense because they were the lowest number. And you kind of see the same with CryptoKitties, right? Like CryptoKitties, 
uh, and maybe this is to, to the, also to the point of like, does, um, you know, does scarcity matter? But cr crypto kitties, they have millions and millions of kitties. And that's because people can like kind of freely breed them as, as the game goes along. But there's this like hundred crypto kitties that are called founder cats. And those are the ones numbered, you know, like one through a hundred. Um, so they're rare in that sense, even though the supply isn't rare. And, you know, how do you take something like NounDAO that is a technical innovation? So, you know, one noun each day, money goes to the DAO, nouns control, uh, you know, the votes of the DAO. I'm new to it, so I might be messing some of that up. But how do you go from a technical innovation like that to a real community? Like, what do you think is like the longevity of nouns? Does it just play into this whole financialization of NFT thesis or... Like, does there have to be something on the roadmap that gets people to buy in? Or it seems like there's a, a distinction here between like the coolness and cloud and technical innovation of an NFT launch and then like its longevity, which is another question. Yeah, well, so one, one thing we didn't mention about the, the Nouns project is that um, the, the capital that goes into the DAO is sort of meant to be governed by the Noun holders and the really like the purpose of it is to strengthen the brand, strengthen the community, you know, allocate capital to things that, you know, sort of aligns the, the noun community and, and gets it out there more. And so that happened pretty naturally in some of these avatar series, like especially the earliest ones like CryptoPunks. Um, and there were, you know, there were people early on who were working very hard for um, for the distribution of, of these assets. What's super interesting is um, that in this context, it's just a natural mechanism. It's just like whoever has affinity to this. And as you can see, the, the auction prices have been quite high, right? So it's a, like that, that is a filter to who can enter this DAO right now. It's like, you have to like really care about this project, about this idea to the tune of like hundreds of thousands of dollars in order, you know, realistically probably like to, to enter the DAO. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but like I- No, no, you <laughs> definitely answered the question from the sense of, you know, the buy-in and, and the initial hype and, and getting people in. I'm just wondering though, like- oh, What like happens how much like of a down future? the road? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so, so again, I, I think the future is proportional to the social capital that you can build. And what's happening right now is that NounsDAO is building social capital more quickly, much more quickly than, um, than series in the past have done that organically. Yeah. And so I think it's absolutely right that it's, a, it's an open market, right? So these, these, um, these auctions, they're gonna sort of have this very high barrier to entry and then maybe down the road, like there'll be kind of a hype cycle and the auction prices will spike and then and then people you know overheat and then the auction prices will go down and it'll get cheap again and suddenly someone will come around and say hey you know what this is a great idea with a lot of community members maybe and this is pretty cheap maybe we should buy it so what i'm expecting from the nouns auction price chart if you will is that that price chart should resemble the price chart of any other digital asset and those usually those usually look like 
like viral measurements, right? It's like they, they hype up, they kind of crash, they hit a trough, they brew, and then they, you know, they experience highs again. Not to get off track, but how much of these initial drops do you think is just driven by, you know, very well-funded whales just trying to buy the first of everything versus say, you know, community grassroots interest? Because to your point, like, you know, most people don't have 78 ETH to bid for now number 14. Um, how much of it do you think is a give and take of, you know, whales versus retail grassroots movement? I think there's a lot of whales and I think the market is, has done well. And, and, you know, there are a bunch of people with that status. And I definitely think people with that status drive some of the exuberance and they certainly drive the purchases of, of this kind of pricing. Now I know where you're going with this, Tom, you're going to say, <laughs> you're going to say whales are bad because whales kind of skew the market. And what we're actually seeing in Nounsdow, in my opinion, is one of the, what it's a, it's a miraculous, and wondrous demonstration of, again, crypto economic mechanisms overpowering whales. So if you look at, I think it was auction of now number 13, uh, what happened was that that whale, so that, that was an auction where the two main um, kind of entities that were battling in it was like one whale and a party DAO. And as I said, the whale won. And after they won, it turned out that I, I, they reached out to me. It turned out that I know who that whale is. <laughs> and what that whale told me was that he was watching the party DAO real-time crowdfunding. And so he knew the maximum capital that that DAO could sort of pit against him in the auction. And he said that he himself had a, you know, kind of top uh, price that he was willing to pay. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, he, what he said was that if the DAO started to crowdfund more than what he was willing to pay, his strategy would actually flip and he would join the DAO because he wanted exposure <laughs> to this asset, right? Wow, that's pretty cool. And so what this game theory, and there's some nuance there around like joining the DAO late, joining the early, which we can talk about, but, but the overall takeaway is that this game theory is creating one of the first mechanisms which actually dissipates the power of whales. Because if that DAO gets like enough, you know, people around it, they'll actually flip the game theory. So whales will always want to join the DAO. That's, that's super cool. That's, that's actually really interesting. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say like, it would be cool if when you bid for a noun, your ETH contribute, your, you know, marginal ETH contribution. So the extra ETH or two ETH gave you that percentage of the total noun. But basically what you're saying with, par with PartyDAO is that people can just own a piece of it. C can you go a bit more into depth on PartyDAO? And I guess that kind of movements tie in with grassroots ownership of NFTs? Yes. So, so it's very interesting because, um, so, well, PartyDAO is kind of the crowdfunding platform and it's, it's resting on this idea of fractionalization. Um, PartyDAO connects to auction mechanisms. I'm not sure exactly which ones they're connected to. I know they're connected to nouns, probably a few others. Um, and then they create, you sort of, you, you come in there, you, you um, 
you lock in some ether, then the swarm is able to bid as that whatever relevant auction is going on and anyone in the swarm can trigger a bid at any moment. And then once the auction is over and if the, the DAO wins, then uh, basically the, uh, the asset is fractionalized and the folks who entered ether into, yeah, there we go. So maybe you could take a look at noun, if you go, yeah, you could look at 14, for example. This is the one that's happening today. Um, it might be closed out. Okay, it's not clicking. Okay, well, in any yeah. case, you, you, it gets fractionalized. Now, what's really interesting is that um, when you fractionalize assets, there's a lot of questions around like, what does that governance look like? And how do you like unfractionalize something once you fractionalize it? Um, and what I think we're about to see is this very interesting phenomenon where these fractionalized token supplies will also turn into DAOs. They'll gain the power of like issuing new shares and they'll gain the power of like allocating capital to further the interests of that asset. And then the same idea that's happening in nouns might happen like across all iconic assets. That's, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm trying to figure this out. So like for something like party DAO, just to go back to this and, and for those who could see my screen, we're just looking at it. What exactly does this mean? Like the bidding pool is only 16,000, but you can take the lead with an additional, this 77 ETH. Does that mean you have to, you, you obviously don't contribute that amount of ETH. You just contribute the marginal amount. Sorry, what do you mean 16,000? Uh, it says the bidding pool is at 16,000 for noun 14 on party DAO. What is like, how does party DAO work? Like you just contribute oh, just a right. small so, amount of ETH? Well, so it, yeah, so, so anyone can come along, like you, like you and I can come along and we can contribute like 0 0.10 ETH. The point is that that pool of capital needs to be bigger than what we see on screen is 77.14 if we want to outbid. And so I think what's happening right now, if you open up the, the party, you know, the partybid.app for, for noun 14, you'll see that we've only crowdfunded $16,000, which is much less than what we'd need to, you know, to win this auction. But the thing about these auctions, Tom, is most bids happen in the last like five minutes. Yeah, no, totally. And, and sorry, you, you mentioned governance a bit. So how does governance within something like PartyDAO work? Like if I, so the bidding pulls at 16,000, give or take, we need an additional 77 ETH. So if I come in here and I'm a whale and I put in the majority of the ETH yep. for the party bid, or sorry, the party DAO, do I control that much on chain? How, how does that all work? So uh, I don't have like too much in-depth experience with actual governance and party DAO just yet. I'm, I'm still looking into it. I could tell you from my research, you actually don't even really need 50% um, of the tokens to be a dictator in such a system, in a weighted voting system, which all token voting systems are. Um, so I'm sure there are definitely, uh, some governance like yeah. kinks and, and, and edge cases that could be ironed out there, but the, but the high level principle is, so if a thousand people bid on noun 14 through the DAO and then they win, um, they will have governance through party DAO and then party, and then party DAO will have governance in noun DAO through the noun. And so 
they have, you know, they have governance um, kind of going to the underlying uh, capital. That's super cool. And I mean, it's a good segue kind of into fractionalization here. And, and there's a lot of topics here. I mean, one of the first ones I wanted to talk to you about was just the idea of owning a piece of a super rare asset. You know, let's take a zombie punk, for example. So, you know, there's only a couple of them, or I'm not sure how many, but, you know, owning one one thousandth or one one millionth of that punk versus owning punk number 10,000. I mean, I wanted to get your takes on like the scarcity versus open-ended nature. And then like, if you, if you see people preferring ownership in the rare NFTs versus just the long tail. Yeah. So gr that's a great question. And, um, people often ask like, yeah, does like scarcity matter? And I think, I think no. And, and the way that, and here's what I mean by that, right? So if we run the thought experiment, like would, would crypto punks be as successful if we only issued five punks? The answer is like, we probably would have failed, right? Like it, probably not. And crypto punks arguably wouldn't have been as successful if we issued like a hundred million punks, right? So, so we see very clearly that there are, are optima. It's not just like, oh, you need to do one of ones or you need like a certain number. I think relative, like the number almost also varies with like the average price that the market values NFTs at and the market is bigger or smaller. So it varies with time. It's like a universal constant that like changes over time or something, right? And like, so I don't think that ju just like in an absolute sense, scarcity uh, matters. It has to be contextualized. And it has to be optimized for the audience. So if you're a creator and your thing is like really unique works of art, right? Like you might want to do one of ones only. But if you are a, an avatar series, then by definition, you're doing like 10,000 or something. And, and that number could be different depending on your audience or maybe three years from now, that, that optimal number is like 3,000, not 10,000. Um, and so... But, but the major takeaway from, from the scarcity discussion is that scarcity is not the factor that creates value. Social capital is the factor and community is the factor. Community consensus is the factor that creates value because those things, so social capital determines like how high something can trade and social and community consensus determines basically a kind of floor um, where there's a bunch of people that believe long-term in the project so much, they're willing to buy it up when it gets cheap. And those two things work together, right, to support the price and to create liquidity. And that's what actually matters. Jake, just playing devil's advocate to your example, which I loved on the, you know, how much of an NFT you should drop, you know, one or a million what do you think the punks drop would have been like if there were only one, but you could buy fractions from the get-go? Do you think it would have been as, you know, stellar of a release? Or it's just kind of weird to think about because to your point, you don't get the community of having, you know, so many different punks and comparing traits and stuff like that. But on the other side, you have one community that helps drive the vision of, I guess, one NFT. Yeah, so you bring up a very interesting point, like, broadly that um, that you can drive community 
consensus, either through a number of sort of individual NFTs or through a fractionalization of a smaller number of NFTs. And actually that in and of itself, again, might not matter as much, right? Because you can support a 10,000 person community with either uh, architecture. But I think in the case of punks, to answer your question, that would have been a devastating blow to punks because you lose like the, like punks are cool art. They, they're very expressive and a small number of pixels. Like there's definitely some, you know, community and collector interest value in having different features where some are more scarce than others, right? So you would have lost that if you could just fractionalize one thing. But I think maybe like punks maybe is the wrong example. Um, maybe if you take, I don't know, you know, just some really, really iconic work of art, the Mona Lisa goes on chain, right? And suddenly you fractionalize that not into 10,000 shards, but you know, one shard for every person on earth, 7 billion shards. And everyone on earth is entitled to, a, to one, right? Like, like you can see that that, you can that, see potentially that being like a more, you know, impactful example. That'd be crazy to think about. <laughs> We'd have to uh, be a lot of gas fees, but I, it, it's, an, it's an interesting example. The, the other question I have for you on that line of thinking is, how do you view fractionalization in the terms of, and I mean, we'll get to liquidity, but how do you view that in community building in the sense that, you know, uh, take G Money, for example, he's a partner of ours, Delphi. Um, he's built an incredible brand around his ape, um, his punk. But now you can have, you know, the coin fund ape and everyone at coin fund can own a piece of it and use its likeness and build a community around it. How do you see that playing out? Do you think we'll have, you know, an ape for a, a project or, or a punk that's, you know, uh, for a certain community? Because basically you can apply them anywhere as long as I guess your community doesn't fracture. I think, I think different groups and, and communities and entities will have different cultural assets. So again, we see, you know, a lot of the NFTs we see out there today are influenced by, you know, internet culture, by, by digital creators, by sort of the movement, which those creators are in uh, art wise, as is a product of our time, right? Like, um, but I could see us again, I could see companies taking some kind of historical asset, cultural asset that they own. I'm thinking like the Apple logo, okay, right? Like how many people know that logo? But imagine if, they'll never do it, but imagine if uh, Apple um, tokenized that and allowed everyone to have a piece of it. I mean, I'd, I'd definitely buy that, right? It's just the level of how iconic and cultural that logo is, um, is hard to understate. So I, I do think there's all these possibilities. It's just a matter of like adoption and what assets are you kind of putting forward to tokenize? How iconic are they? How useful are they for your purpose? I like that. And thinking about fractionalization brings up the concept of, you know, millions, billions of owners. I, I saw a tweet by Kyle Samani. I'm, I'm going to botch what he said because I don't have it up in front of me, but he kind of brought up the point of like, how do you support you know, the millionth NFT creator and their work of art. Or, or, and I guess there's, you know, comparisons here to the traditional world where, you know, the long tail of, or the end of the long tail of content creators don't really make much money. But 
how do you view like the sustainability for the income streams of individual creators at the long tail? Because not everyone's Axie, not everybody is Ember Sword, not everybody is Dapper Labs or, or Larva Labs. You know, you know, take your pick. But how do you kind of view the long tail and, and the sustainability aspect for the individual creators? Well, I think I think these things tend to look like power laws, right? So um, let's just take a step back. So think about like celebrities, you know, I don't know, 35 years ago. So like Michael Jackson, 35 years ago is a celebrity who is known on every continent of this planet. Everybody knows him. Like it doesn't matter if you're in sub-Saharan Africa or Europe or America, like, right? And then, and then you have like a bunch of like movie stars and then you have uh, the point is that that power law like drops off like really sharply. Like there's a few mega celebrities that have gotten that status through, you know, putting out iconic art and, and music and, and content and what, whatever it is that they do. And then like most people are in the long tail and, and like unable to be monetized. And then what happens is that YouTube comes along and takes that power law and just makes it less steep, right? It's just now instead of having like one celebrity that's known everywhere, you have millions of local, and when I say local, I don't mean physically local, I mean like global, I mean like internet local, <laughs> um, right? Like influencers. Cl click away, yeah. Who, who each have a smaller, a vastly smaller audience than Michael Jackson but are able to monetize that audience in a way that is sustainable for their business. And so that like that power law has smoothed out in other words. And so you, if, you, if you believe that, you know, there's this overall process that is smoothing out power laws, what is that process? Well, in the case of Michael Jackson and celebrities, it's like the speed of information. It's like, I don't need a giant like recording, label right to promote me to become a music celebrity i could just go on youtube and the cost of going on youtube is low and the barrier entry is low and I, I could be a good marketer and aggregate enough of an audience what does that mean what does that power law mean in in art sense well the distribution mechanism for art has been similar to the distribution mechanism of you know music labels or or mainstream media or whatever else so before to become, uh, you know, to become an artist, you had to get sort of fostered by a gallery. And now you can like remove that middleman and go sell your art on the global market using NFTs. And so the process that's smoothing out the artist's power law is blockchain technology or like global access to that, not even blockchain technology, just global access to, to digital markets. The blockchain technology really super charges that um so so that's what i think like i think we're not going to get everybody not everybody can be monetized but we can do so much better than you know than we have done in the past in various areas you brought up a lot of good points jake and i want to i want to cue in on the example of so michael jackson obviously a person super famous clearly made some mistakes if you take a punk like, let's just take up a zombie punk again, just to keep the examples easy. Let's say there's a community around the zombie punk. There's, let's make it easy. There's 10,000 shard owners. They build a community around it. They have content and movies and what have you. Um, 
how do you think through though, like the ability for that personality to stay the same or change, right? Because at the end of the day, there is a community behind say this punk, there are people making decisions. It might be on discord. It might be on a DAO. It may come down to people who are louder, who are better salespeople who want to take it in a certain direction. How do you like, I guess, how do you envision like that? Because obviously the community members want to do what's in the best interest of the punk's brand and thus its value, but, and, and a punk can't say get divorced or overdose or something like a, a celebrity can, but they can clearly make mistakes. They can tweet something stupid. They can make a bad decision. They could fracture their community. It, it just, it's really hard for me to think through like what a punk looks like that's backed by so many people. What do you think? I know, I know it's kind of a weird yeah, question. It, yeah. It's, Look, this is one of those things that we're sort of inventing anew, right? As we and and as we go along, and you know where my mind goes is, uh, are you familiar with Lil Michaela? Oh yeah, yep, yeah. So there is this trend started by Lil Michaela uh, and the studio behind it, which is essentially, can we create virtual influencers? So there's a studio, they 3D render this, you know, young woman character called Michaela. She has an Instagram account. She's one of the most followed. Instagram accounts um, and people connect with this like digital character, um, you know, probably just as much as they connect with, with other influencers. Um, in that case, the behavior of Lil Bikela is determined by like a small group of people who are her, you know, progenitors. Um, and what you're describing is a sort of like, democratization of that it's or decentralization of that in other words who will decide what this character will do well you know it's a DAO of people that will vote and and as a collective intelligence you're right like i think the attitudes will evolve i think i think um these virtual characters will make mistakes or fall in and out of favor um and actually in many ways what what um, Brood, which is the studio behind Lil Michaela is doing, they're, they're actually are heading in that direction. They have some decentralization plans, as far as I understand, and, and voting plans. So we'll, we'll actually be able to see that play out, um, you know, in, 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 in character-driven ways. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen, Tom. I think, I think like, let, let's see a virtual character get canceled or something, and, and <laughs> that will be... That'll be an interesting kind of clash of culture. It It's kind of funny though. I mean, the feedback loop is quick. Like if you cancel celebrity, they still have money in the bank. If you cancel that zombie punk, like liquidity for its shards and, and this price per shard will just fall off a cliff. Like the feedback loop is a lot faster, I guess, to actions, but I'm not totally sure what that looks like yet. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one. So let's go into NFT liquidity a bit, mechanisms. Uh, we, we mentioned fractionalization a few times. I'm familiar with fractional. Um, I know there's obviously clearly a bunch of others, um, NFTX, Uniqly, et cetera. How are you thinking through NFT liquidity at a high level? I mean, obviously we talked about, you know, yeah. very rare punks that don't really trade that often, but, you know, then there's things like Upshot where, uh, you know, disclosure, we invested in fractional Upshot, but, you know, Upshot, you can pay a group of people to crowdsource what they think um, is rare or not rare and back into a price. So, at a high level, how are you thinking about um, liquidity for NFTs? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, so if we trace the history back to, again, back to fungibles, 
it's not that long ago. I would say two and a half years ago, Tom, if a team released a fungible token, the expectation of liquidity on that token would be like, oh, we'll get liquidity a year from now. And we <laughs> might have to pay a million dollars to an Asian exchange to- list us? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dep depending on, you know, the, the situation. And so, and then, so, so that was like a reasonable expectation that teams launching tokens had by the summer of 2020, which is what now about a year ago, the time to liquidity for a token went to zero, like using a liquidity mining mechanism, um, you know, Balancer was one of the first projects that did it. Um, Ampleforth, you know, there's many, many folks involved. Yearn, um, but what 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 was clear is that, you know, for the space, this layout of like I have to wait a year and pay a million dollars was like not adequate. And they're like, can we use the core value propositions of blockchain technology to solve this problem? Can we create a mechanism? In other words, that incentivizes liquidity. And that mechanism was the liquidity mining program. It's basically taking like DEX shares, right? Staking them and then earning the token. And that's a distribution mechanism and a liquidity mechanism. Um, and by the way, it's dependent on this other technology, precursor technology, which is the DEX. Um, when people look at NFTs, they're like, they, they, again, they draw this traditional analogy to general goods or digital goods, like traditional digital goods or just traditional goods. And when you have unique non-fungible goods, the way that you get liquidity for them is you put them on the marketplace, you find a buyer, you transact. And of course, that's always like slow going. It's hard to find a buyer. NFTs a year ago were a very nascent space with not many buyers. Um, and so the consensus view was NFTs are not liquid and NFTs might never be liquid. And some people even took this even further and said, NFTs should not be liquid. And we should work against like people trying to get, create liquidity for them, right? Um, and what, is, what was fairly straightforwardly obvious to me having watched liquidity mining happen is that the difference between a liquid and an illiquid asset class is just what is the you know crypto economic mechanism that makes them liquid you know the design space of crypto economic mechanisms is so rich what is the mechanism that makes them liquid and um and i started thinking about that and it was probably like late 19 early 20 right and i even have a paper from like april of 20 or something about how to do this um so the uh the answer is that the NFT liquidity problem boils down to the NFT pricing problem. If you can price NFTs, then you can create a smart contract that automatically gives you like exactly the right number of tokens that your NFTs are worth. And there's another aspect here. And I wrote a whole blog post on this. It's called Appraisal Games and an NFT Liquidity Problem on the CoinFund blog at blog.coinfund.io. Um, but there, it, it, it boils down that there's like a certain measurement here of like how capital efficient are we? So if you take the marketplace approach and you want to value something that is worth a million dollars at a million dollars, then someone has to transact a million dollars for that valuation to occur. 
if you take the auction approach and, and, and the marketplace and the auction approach are the ones, the predominant approaches that have existed for the last four years, you take the auction approach, the capital efficiency of an auction, it potentially is even worse than the capital efficiency of a sale because many people have to lock in more capital, right? To eventually get um, a valuation of a million dollars. And so the first capital efficient liquidity uh, mechanism or pricing mechanism um, that came about is fractionalization. It says, you take this thing, you fractionalize it into a bunch of pieces. Now someone only needs to transact $5 and then it has an implied valuation. And so the capital efficiency like goes up. Now, the thing about fractionalization is that it is a, it's a pretty heavy machinery, right? So for every fractionalization, you have to create a token supply. For every token supply, you have to create a liquidity pool or multiple liquidity pools. For every liquidity pool, you have to find market makers um, and so on and so forth. So it is a, I think fractionalization is a, is a zero to one capital efficient pricing mechanism for NFTs. But I also think that it applies the best to things that are really big, really iconic. It's that zombie crypto punk and it's now number one. And, you know, things that are like really expensive. When you think about how many NFTs are out there, and if you think about like in the future, you're going to have a $20 music album as an NFT and a $5 ticket to something and like da da da. Right, it's hard to imagine creating trillions of token supplies. It's just like you could do it, and the, the technology could support. But it's just not efficient. So, what's the efficient way of pricing those things? And that's why I think Upshot is so interesting because what Upshot allows you to do is it creates Upshot is a you know underneath it's a it's a protocol that incentivizes people to answer questions honestly. And this algorithm can be applied to subjectively valued assets and also objectively valued assets. You could say, you know, you could ask this algorithm like, hey, Tom, you know, in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, like, is that restaurant good? And that's not an objective question, right? But people who live in Williamsburg know that Mesa Kayokan is good. And so you can, you can find local or global again, um, you know, you can find local consensus around answers and you can report that consensus. And the same exact thing can be done for NFT pricing. If we have a POC piece, we have a whole set of humans who are privy to the history of how this piece sold in the past. They're privy to the social capital that POC has. They're, they might be able to look up plans that he has for doing something in the future. They have internal feelings as collectors about what this might be worth. And altogether, they can report an on the ground local consensus around approximately how much this thing is worth. Like I know that, you know, punk number one is gonna be worth more than some other punk uh, in the collection. Or, uh, or I know that like an earlier piece from Puck, which was one of one, is probably going to be worth more than a later piece like the fungible, which is the, you know, the series that he did on, on Nip the Gateway later. 
And so Upshot is able to report what amounts to pricing feeds of social consensus around the pricing of these assets. And once you have those pricing feeds, then again, you don't need a token supply necessarily to transact. Just by giving that price as a reference to buyers and sellers, like you're already increasing the, uh, the probability that they will transact. And that's not even to say that you could, there's so much you can do with that pricing feed. Like you could, again, you could put, plug it into a mechanism where someone could just go to a smart contract and liquidate at that price. The, your coin fund blog, I love it because you just bullet out the sales mechanism, the auction mechanism, fractionalization me mechanism, everything you just ran through. For those listening, I'll link it in the show notes. And, and I'm going to go back to this in a second. But talking about Upshot, um, how do you get accurate prices, though, like from the globe, right? Like, and, and I guess my question is um, kind of as devil's advocate question in that only the real like in the weeds punk people know the differences in attributes, how the market reacts, that stuff like that. Like there isn't exactly a million people out there. Maybe there is, I, I doubt it though, who can, you know, correctly and easily compare one punk to another. And honestly, they may have biases. Maybe people like the cyber Kongs community more and they're just going to rate every Kong down or, you know, every ape down. Like, how do you kind of think through getting, you know, moving beyond bias when you have something, which I think is awesome, by the way, incentivizing people to, to vote, how do you yeah. like just get rid of bias though? Yeah, great question. So I think like, um, so there's definitely many, many scenarios in the NFT world where uh, things are like much more objective than you think, right? So like, for example, in series, there are certain traits that are like objectively more rare and by the way, this comes with a little bit of nuance, right? So we, we want to say that rare traits are more valuable. And my wife actually is a big fan of uh, World of Women. And the most sort of like rare hair for the World of Women series is like white and black hair. But it actually doesn't fetch as much on the market as rainbow hair. And that's just because like people look at rainbow hair and they think it like looks better than like this Cruella DeVille like style hair. And so it's not actually totally obvious that something that is more rare is, is definitely more expensive. But what is obvious is that a machine learning algorithm would do a fantastic job of telling the difference, right? So they could like look at the market, they could look at the traits and then they can create an association of like, you know, how much this thing should be worth. And there are several examples that I've seen of people using machine learning to create pricing. And from those examples, it works really, really well, especially for things like series, especially for things where you can like quantify factors. Um, and that might even apply to art, right? Like I can quantify factors about pop, right? I can quantify his Twitter followers. I could quantify how many people hold his assets, uh, how, many, how much they've sold for in the past, right? So this idea of like automation and actually building machine learning models is the thing that will remove the human bias from people who are trying to game the system. In the case of Upshot, the, the, the protocol itself has a really interesting property, which is again, that it incentivizes you to answer honestly. What does that mean? Well, it means if you're like answering uh, in, a, in a way that the protocol judges you're being biased, you'll, you'll get phased out. Your voice will start to fade out of the, 
of the price feed. Um, and so I think that machine learning will go like a very, very long way of definitely pricing, objectively priced things, could put a dent into subjectively priced things. And then the rest is like human uh, kind of responses and ingenuity there. I really like the meeting of the AI data science side and like the human subjectivity side. I guess we're getting into the nitty gritty of Upshot here and I don't have the answer to this, but you know, would love to ask you, how do you incentivize people though? Like, so you have this reputation where let's say we have punks, but they're not popular yet. And you go on Upshot and you start rating them and you say, hey man, this is the future. They're awesome. I love them. The AI says, nah, Jake, you're dumb, man. Nobody cares about these. But six months later, punks take off. My reputation's already, I think, damaged. How do you, I guess just the reputation has to be over a longer period of time or how does that all work? Yeah, this is really like in the nitty gritty of, of, of Upshot. And, um, you know, I would say it would be damaged relative to that particular sort of question, but not necessarily others. Um, let, let's not get into it. Like if you, if you, if you actually like, if folks want to um, go really deep on this, it's quite a mathematical framework. There's a blog post on Upshot uh, called Peer Prediction 101. So peer prediction is a 20-year academic kind of discipline um, for being able to do this sort of uh, mechanism. Uh, there's a link to the papers that Upshot has used. If you have a math degree, uh, <laughs> it'll be really good and, and interesting. Or if you've studied economics, um, but for our purposes here, it suffice to say that, you know, this is an experiment. We think there's a very interesting uh, protocol to like put into production and uh, we'll see sort of how far we can get with it. No, I like that. And just going back to your, your blog post on like NFT pricing, the fractionalization aspect always caught me as very interesting because you can obviously take something that's rare, give it out to people, they can buy it, they can buy into the community, the upside, the speculation. But the thing that I thought was also really cool about it was just how these things are priced. And I know you may have a couple bets here and you know the, the one I know the best because we invested is, is fractional and, and it's peers. But the thing that was interesting about it was you know, everybody that owns a shard on fractional sets a pro rata reserve price. So if I own 10%, I could say a punk's worth a million and that backs into an average. And then that price could be initiated by anybody, which would then start an auction. So you kind of get the fractionalization aspect and you get the auction aspect. And yep. you know whoever wins the auction, uh, they pay and people can uh, trade in their shards for the escrow. It's, it's very simple. But as much as I love the fractionalization, there are concerns here, right? Like, you know, fractionalization gives you a cool price or, or a a straightforward price fee because people are buying and selling these shards each day, but there's issues here, right? Because the shards are traded on an AMM and not a hundred percent of the shards are even on the AMM. So you're getting a price feed to your point on like the liquidity price feed Oracle side, but it could also be skewed, right? Because, you know, if you only have 5% of the shards in the AMM and somebody starts to buy it up, the price will skyrocket. So there are, I guess, still concerns here, right? Yeah. Um, I think so. I'm not sure I like fully followed all the mechanics there. Um, but I think that like, essentially what we need to do is we need to experiment. 
done with these things. And we need to have an overall framework of, you know, why, why can this service like, like there's, there's this like wide gamut of NFTs. Like, why is this good for all NFTs or like a certain class of NFTs? I think the main criteria that really brings things uh, out and, 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 and makes it the growth here exponential is this idea of capital efficiency. So there, like when you lock capital into these systems, you tend to like, it's good in some ways because you, you know, you take units out of production, right? And like, you, you, maybe you raise prices in, in like ether or something, but what you really want is you want like people who own NFTs to have the most um, freedom with their capital, to have like the least amount of, of locked up, um, you know, kind of illiquid capital as they can. And NFTs are by default liquid. So these mechanisms, like, I think they can have all kinds of configurations. They can have, you know, AMM pieces and fractionalization pieces and auction pieces. And the things that I sort of listed in the article are, are just like kind of the elements of, of what's possible, but I can't even predict like what combinations of these things or new things will come along. And by the way, um, the other like really interesting mechanism here is synthetic NFTs. So if you have, um, if you have price feeds say, you can create like an asset that tracks the price of, you know, punk number one or whatever um, without actually owning it. And that's actually like really capital efficient in some sense, right? So I think there's gonna be experiments, there's gonna be problems, we're gonna learn a lot. Um, there's problems today, like I, when, I, when I go to NFTX, I, I really, <laughs> I, I'm really peeved by the fact that, you know, no matter what um, asset I deposit into, you know, the hash masks pool, I only ever get one hash mask token. Like to me, like I understand why that's a simple mechanism, but to me that, that pricing is just like totally broken. It means it incentivizes the, um, the person depositing to only deposit the lowest price asset in the collection. And what they should really be getting is not floor pricing. They should just be getting pricing. Like when I deposit a hashtag, excuse me, a hash mask into the fund, I should get as many hash mask tokens as the thing is worth as determined by an Oracle versus just one. And I had this whole like Twitter rant about this. I, I was just on your Twitter now because I was looking at our pod notes and I was looking at your your scarcity and NFTs, which we covered um, earlier. And, and I agree with you on the mechanisms there. I want to go back, Jake, because we've been discussing like the DeFi use cases, the NFT financialization aspects. I want to discuss more of, you know, not the centralized players, but like, you know, the larger traditional, I say traditional in quotes here, yeah. but the open seas, the rareables, the super rares, I feel like there's so many exchanges now. Like, how do you think through the exchange market, the differences, the user experience? Because this is where primarily the majority of the world is going to interact with NFTs, I think. Yeah, this is a great question. So as an investor, I have had so many decks across my desk, the 
last six months that are all kind of, you know, identify that NFTs are a thing and they want to capture the value of NFTs and the strategy to capture, ca capturing the value of NFTs is to build, you know, some infrastructure, some, a marketplace and maybe have a go to market for it, or, or maybe have a compelling supply side funnel for it. But these projects are all, you know, in some sense, very similar in that they're taking, they're making a few mistakes. And the most common mistake is, num is number one, is that I want to build a marketplace because again, I am under this like traditional assumption that marketplaces are the way that we create liquidity for non-fungible goods. Number two is that they tend to build the whole stack of that marketplace. So when you, you know, when you meet such founders, they'll say, you know, we're going to build a website, we're going to create a mechanism where people, you know, can add inventory or, or mint, you know, onto the platform and then other people could buy it. And what we're going to do is we're going to facilitate the issuance of NFTs. We're also going to facilitate the exchange of NFTs. And so after you see 50 decks that are doing this, like you realize like someone's going to have to recognize that that rail that ability to issue and to do exchange is a really highly commodified technology that everyone will eventually find in some standard you know, protocol. And my analogy here is AMMs or you know, protocols for fungible exchange. First, we had all of these centralized exchanges and then, we, and then DEXs came along and what you find in, in, in DEXs today is that the top, I don't know, 95% of uh, crypto native DEX volume is handled by something like nine or 10 protocols for fungible exchange, in other words, AMMs. And by the way, 60% or so, last I checked, was handled by Uniswap. And the same exact process will happen in non-fungible exchange, as soon as people like realize that um, you know that the, the, this commodification is a natural process. Now, the other process we're seeing is just like in 2017, traditional founders are coming into the space right now, and we finally have enough infrastructure, unlike in 2017, that they can go and take products to market. Like the the base layers are built, you know. Uh, the, the exchange mechanisms are there, the, the liquidity mining mechanisms are there, the best practices have been furthered, right, and understood. And what you want a team of NFT entrepreneurs to really be focusing on is actually the go-to-market to the mainstream user, to whoever their audience is. And Tom, there are so many different cool audiences, right? There's artists who want to do digital art, there's K-pop fans. There's people who want to buy like digital autographs from Ashton Kutcher, uh, who signed, you know, some memorabilia from one of his movies or shows. Um, there's um, Asian markets. There's Western markets. There's sports fans. Uh, I mean, like you can break down again the, you know, the collectible space across like probably like tens and tens and tens of demographics. And for every demographic, it's a very different problem to go to market. Like to go to market for K-pop fans 
is a dramatically different problem than selling the NFT for a house, right? For, for, for real estate. Um, and so what we wanna see as investors is we wanna see someone build like pretty a pretty robust NFT infrastructure. And then we wanna invest in the traditional teams or just great teams who are taking the value proposition to market. And today you have, every team has to do everything. And so this is why I'm like super excited about what Rarible is doing with Rarible Protocol, which got launched about two weeks ago. And Rarible Protocol is that Rails that someone can come along and, and just, uh, you know, just, just use as the backend for this NFT application not worry about having to implement an ERC-721 contract or 1155 contract, not having to worry about uh, building the auction you know, contract or the, or the exchange contract or the lazy minting facility, right? So people don't have to spend on-chain fees or, or may, like making the decision of, should I be on Ethereum or Polygon or Flow or whatever? Like all of that is just kind of supported in the backend infrastructure. And then they can focus on going to market. Uh, and, and that's how I think about it. When, I, when teams in the NFT space come to me, I'm like, okay, what are you doing? Are you building infrastructure? Are you building liquidity technology? Are you building a marketplace? Are you someone who can get IP through the door and get them tokenized? Uh, are you a buy side person who's collecting NFTs, right? So there's, there's very few areas you can categorize into. Um, but the ones that I think are going to be the most impactful are the ones that create this sort of picks and shovels infrastructure layer and the ones who get away from that traditional marketplace approach and really create like innovative ways of, of making uh, liquidity in the asset class. Damn. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really cool comparison. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to think about competing for liquidity and having like Uniswap versus SushiSwap versus Dodo versus, you know, et cetera, versus centralized exchanges, because the NFT world, you're competing for liquidity, but you're also competing on that experience and the different target markets. And I guess it would be lazy to think of OpenSea as being able to just serve all these different markets with different, you know, sub filters on their site, because in reality, like I use Snapchat for a totally different reason than Instagram. And, you know, people use TikTok for a different reason than Reels. Like there's very legit segmentation there. I guess, how do you think about it though, long-term, like, you know, converging on something like an open sea is like the easy answer, but do you think like the differences in how these different marketplaces approach their target markets? And I'm not too familiar with Rarible's protocol, but it might be interesting to describe that a bit more. Like, how do you think about the longevity of, you know, consolidating down to one or two winners versus maintaining this differentiation? I think when you look at traditional marketplace, well, when you look at traditional kind of like retail marketplaces, things like Amazon, um, they tend to, first of all, they might own their inventory. So like Amazon has all these like warehouses where they actually own the inventory and can, can optimize it in various ways. But the more important issue is that they create very strong network effects. And sometimes that's based on owning inventory. And sometimes that's based on just like traditional like marketplace, like two-way marketplace 
aggregation. Um, what's happening in, in NFT world and in the sort of decentralized marketplace world is that network effects do not work the same way. So first of all, uh, NFT marketplaces do not own their inventory. So if I'm an NFT creator, I can put a sell order on OpenSea and I can put a sell order on Rarible and I could do that like in quantum superposition at the same time. And whichever marketplace gets me my eyeballs first and whichever one transacts first, that's where I transact. And that's enabled by basically like off-chain um, technology, right? Like I can put in those orders simultaneously because, because they're off-chain. Um, the other thing is that that two-sided marketplace traditional lock-in really doesn't work in blockchain protocols as well as it does in the traditional world. So like, imagine, I don't know, traditional exchanges. So NYSE, BATS, NASDAQ, right? If I wanted to move just massive amounts of liquidity from one exchange to another, the, the network effect is very strong. And the network effect is really the... Um, it's the switching cost, right? I used to work in, on Wall Street, right? Like, the, the, I mean, they have infrastructure below the New York Stock Exchange, like in the server route, like just the cost of switching from, from one exchange to another is huge. Now, when you go over to protocol world, you have Sushi Swap, Vampire Attack Uniswap, and, you know, extracted something like a billion dollars of, of value uh, overnight, or I can come in and move a billion dollars of value in a single Ethereum transaction using, you know, a $5 transaction fee. So, so those switching costs really don't work the same way. The same thing in, in, um, in NFT marketplaces, like the core functionalities of these marketplaces are, are just technologically like the same. It's, it's even less diverse than in AMMs, like at least in AMMs, you have, you know, Uniswap V3 and like balancer, right? To the buy side, they look largely the same, right? They're like, okay, we, we've swapped tokens. But to the, to the liquidity side, to the supply side, they look dramatically different, right? Because V3 has those range queries and then like balancer is more like a automated rebalancing portfolio mechanism, right? So at least there's like differentiation on the supply side. But there's, there's no analog to that in NFT world. NFT infrastructure is like very straightforward. It's like, we, we want to enable liquidity and we want to enable you to transact and to issue. And maybe in the future we'll do, we'll help you like distribute the things too. And so I just don't think that the NFT marketplace world is a winner take all world. You know, do, do you know, Tom, like the official definition of winner take all? Did you ever read it? on? Wikipedia? I don't think so, to be honest. So the official definition in economics of winner take all is if you provide a service that is 1% better, you'll take, you know, the, the, you know, the, the majority of the market, right? It's just, it's like, it's impossible to provide a 1% better service on a, com on a fully commodified like infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. It, right. It's too competitive. Yeah. So, you know, so I, the way that I think this will play out is that that power law will also be um, less steep. Mm -hmm. There will be more players. But, but what, I, what I do think is that if you own an NFT issuance and exchange protocol, 
There's very few folks that have put forward that strategy in the market today. It will probably start to compete, be more competitive now. But if you put forward that issuance and exchange protocol strategy, that is actually a better lock-in than, uh, than having a marketplace. <laughs> and the reason it's a better lock-in is because once like the engineer like knows how to use, like, use your framework and can enjoy kind of the, the standardization of that and can enjoy that development process, can enjoy the royalty protocol, which is so important within these protocols, right? Um, then I think the switching costs of those things are just um, are just bigger. And being on a single issuance protocol actually does create some, uh, you know, some lock-in for for assets. Like it's it's mostly like psychological, probably, but. Um, there's going to be some advantages to having all that stuff in one place. What do you think though about, I mean, you mentioned targeting different communities, you know, the K-pop fans versus different artists, but like going on super rare, going on rareable, going on open you know, it's just such a different experience, right? Like it's like you go there for different reasons. They have different artists, like it's different collections. Like, like, do you think that lasts? Like, I just, I don't know the comparison to the traditional world. Like, and I know you mentioned it's obviously very different and I agree, but it just feels like, you know, eventually we have to converge to something, right? Like some mass, like some UI or some UX better than others marginally. And you maybe kick into that power law, I guess. I wish I could share my screen. I'd show you a diagram that I really love from uh, or maybe you can pull it up if you want. It's if you go to rareable.org and you scroll to like the middle of the page, there's this diagram. I'll pull it shows, up. Okay. Um, uh, okay, cool. Should be sharing now. All right. Do you there see? Yeah, there we go. So if you if you just go scroll down just a tad right there. Okay. So what the middle part is, is the protocol. It's basically like the smart contract and the API that allows you to easily issue and exchange NFTs. It might have other features like search or, uh, or, or easy indexing of, uh, you know, of, of everything in the protocol. Underneath, you have this operating in a cross-chain fashion across multiple blockchains that are also interoperable. But the thing I want to draw your attention to is, is the top portion. So that represents that someone can essentially build an app store like experience, right? So if I'm a K-pop fan, go to market, I create an app for K-pop fans. If I'm an art marketplace, I create an art marketplace app. Um, and by the way, it doesn't have to just be assets. It could also be like analytics. So you see, for example, Zerion is there. Zerion today pulls in NFT data from the Rarible protocol and allows you to display your NFTs in your wallet. Uh, you can imagine a Shopify for, for enterprise kind of tool for enterprise. There's people building Shopify-like experiences right now on, on Solana. It's called, what is it called? Metaplex or something like that, right? And, and it's, again, it's not about like who consolidates it's not about like who wins the biggest audience. It's precisely about 
differentiating the experiences like across different audiences and just targeting them, but having a common, you know, sort of infrastructure to build on. So just for those not watching the video, what we're looking at is basically base layer, Ethereum, Polkadot, Flow, middle layer is the Rarible protocol, the API and the smart contracts, and above it is things like Rarible and Zerion and custom marketplaces to Jake's point. Jake, isn't the Rarible thesis then that, I mean, the Rarible thesis is that there will be a thousand marketplaces. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I think like, again, because marketplaces do not lock in, you know, sort of global supply mm -hmm. and they cannot, and they cannot go to market to every market. It just, it's not, it's not possible, right? It's like, I'll give you, I'll give you like a weird example. So there's a really interesting use case for NFTs, which is selling fonts. It's not unlike selling stock photos, right? So like, basically there's two functionalities. I, as a user, want a license of font. So I want to pay Tom $20 to use his font on my website, or I want to be the owner of the font and enjoy the revenue stream of licenses. And so the first thing costs $20 and the second thing costs the present value of all the future streams, call it $10,000. Both of those things are, can be represented as NFTs. The really, tr it could be a very like interesting, if it might be a smaller market, right? But it could be a very interesting demonstration of decentralized marketplaces. If you take the way that we buy and sell fonts today and you completely disrupt it by, by taking font creators and bringing them directly together with the people who want to license their fonts and using a decentralized marketplace technology and NFT technology you know, to do so. I think you're going to create a ton of value. I think people who create fonts will like love this. I think people who will buy fonts will get cheaper fonts. Like it's good for everybody, but how do you build it? Like, it's not a problem that someone who's a big marketplace wants to, to think about. It's too small of a niche, but it's something that like someone who really cares about this area, who really cares about fonts, who's sick of those like font, stupid font marketplaces online, you know, that gouge you and whatever. And they just want to like build this they can come to this infrastructure on Rarible protocol and just focus on the front end experience of doing that, get something out in, in a matter of weeks versus years, right? And try it. And then who knows, maybe we'll 10X the font market. That's, it's interesting. And just to bring it back to Rarible, I mean, what is Rarible providing each marketplace? And then two, why does, what, how does the success of each marketplace benefit variable token holders? Absolutely. Great question. So every front end that we sort of build for this protocol becomes kind of like, yeah, well, not all of them, but a lot of them will become sort of issuers of NFTs, right? So if I want to create a platform for issuing, I don't know, music NFTs, I could build it on here. And then the supply of music NFTs will go into the protocol. So it's almost like if you are a, an LP in the fungible sense in an AMM, right? Like you're, you're kind of creating supply 
And the protocol will, will actually compensate front ends for doing that. So it's quite literally liquidity mining of, or, or yield farming, I should say more accurately. Um, it's quite literally yield farming, but of the non-fungible variety, right? So the incentive, there, there are some technological incentives. It's like easy to build. I can split my revenue stream among, you know, which is a nice feature to have. Like I can have indexing, I can have search, um, I can have issuance, I can have exchange, I can plug in different ways of selling NFTs and transacting, auctions, drops, you know, all of that is sort of encapsulated in the back end and allows you, allows the creator to focus on the front end and, and the user experience. And then I also am compensated for being essentially a liquidity provider in this protocol. The protocol is open and governed by Rarible Protocol DAO. So if you're holding, you know, if you're earning Rary token here and then you you can go and vote on like how the protocol proceeds or how it forks or, you know, how it allocates capital. The, the Rary DAO, Rarible DAO um, has, so far produced like insane amounts of money as, as rewards every week for the last year. And the big question for me as an investor is like, are we allocating this money efficiently? Like, is it enough to just be giving it to people who transact on Rarible? So I don't know if you know this, but if you transact on Rarible, you'll get a rare reward every week. Mm -hmm. um, now that has been great for like bootstrapping the brand but is it like more efficient to have the DAO reallocate some capital toward building a Shopify experience or some of these niche marketplaces, right? So just like all of the other decentralized protocols, um, this will be openly publicly governed, but this is the first such NFT protocol that is. I, I may have missed it, Jake, but so if you build a marketplace using the Rarible, like a percentage of those fees will then flow back to the end app, the initial DAO, the rare DAO? In principle, yeah. So, so okay. if you're like, if you're creating volume, right? If you're creating GMV on the protocol, the protocol will uh, compensate you. So that all of that is sort of in, in the roadmap. I'm not sure exactly what is in production today of that, but that's, that's the idea. The the wild part, I mean, not to like simplify it and to just to scratch the surface, like it's a pretty, I thought at first it was a pretty binary bet against OpenSea because you have one marketplace to OpenSea per se, 10,000 Rarible. But the funny part is on Rarible, like it doesn't matter if you have 10,000 successful ones or you have OpenSea V2 powered by Rarible, you kind of still win. I guess it's just a bet of if you think there will be fragmented marketplaces versus one central marketplace, which frankly, I don't have a good answer on. but it definitely appears very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's some early startups that went out into the NFT space with the view of being an, an art marketplace, but in the current context of like NFTs being very diverse set of assets, they, they're now a niche, right? So there's like art marketplaces, but then there's music marketplaces and then there's other kinds of collectibles marketplaces, right? Um, and so it actually would make a ton of sense if someone who was like an art marketplace actually moved over on top of this protocol, because they would potentially save a lot of like, I mean, long-term, they would save a lot of like backend work for themselves. 
And this is certainly true for people who are coming into the market now. We see this in other areas of blockchain, like we're investors in Biconomy. And Biconomy is essentially a SaaS uh, where people can simplify things like moving uh, or like meta transactions, like moving capital across L2s, you know, things like that, or, or like onboarding a user uh, and giving them that first ether, right? So what we're seeing broadly in crypto is that the newer players, they don't want to sit there and build that functionality from scratch. They want to pay a SaaS to not have to think about doing that and to focus on their target market. And this is exactly what we're trying to achieve here at Rarible Protocol. That's really cool. Yeah, no, after we hang up, I'm definitely going to compare Rarible and Super Rare and OpenSea and, and dive in. But I, I like that they're decentralizing. And you know, just a cursory look on their, their token econ, it looks like they're using the token for curation. How do you see that playing out? Like That's a super interesting kind of attribute that I don't think we've totally seen like work yet, but there haven't really been many examples. Yeah, so I think like Rarible was one of the first venues uh, in NFTs that had this problem of curation because they're, you know, the thing that separates Rarible from, you know, like a super rare or, uh, or a foundation is that they're totally open. Anyone can come in and mint anything they want. And this creates problems, right? Like as Rarible became more popular last summer, um, you know, a lot of people came and like broke copyright and a lot of people would do this thing called wash trading uh, of NFTs, which means that they were like sending them to themselves to try to game the rewards engine. And Rarible really had this like internal problem of like, how do we stop this behavior? How do we curate? How do we monitor? How do we like remove bad actors from the system? That is a tough problem uh, to have. And they were the first such marketplace to have that problem. And so curation is a, I think is an incredibly important aspect of what this open decentralized protocol will do long-term. Uh, Rarible is also not the only marketplace and, and venue to have this problem, right? Like there's many people suffer in decentralized systems from, from anonymity in, in this way. And so these curation systems are gonna be quite interesting. In fact, rare coin from super rare got launched this past week right, is a curation token. So you see that trend, you know, continuing. Um, and so I think in Rarible's context, curation also opens up things like staking. It opens up like a new kind of yield that you can uh, earn uh, with Rarity. It opens up some voting capabilities that uh, maybe you didn't have before on, on the platform. Just you can, if you're an involved user, um, this will be a way that you can really actively participate in the network. And, and that's my fault, Jake. I confused it. Super Rare is the one that just launched for curation and we've been discussing Rarible. I got confused by the two. And So Raricoin, like it's not launched today, but in, in sort of the staking, con the conception of like staking the token would, would mean that you would like lock in Raricoin and that gives you governance and curation rights in the platform. Got it. I mean, it kind of goes back to like using your token on a marketplace to curate NFTs. I mean, we're kind of going back to Upshot in a way, right? Or I mean, th there's some similarities here between, you know, me curating what I think is valuable 
and me curating, I guess, my opinion on what I think is valuable and upshot. I mean, obviously the mechanics are totally different here and the economic interest is totally different, but it's, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Um, that's, that's right. It's a different way of potentially, uh, pricing things or at least filtering them. This is cool, man. Definitely post pod. I'm going to dig into this and hopefully do a tweet storm or something I'll share with you, but just a couple other questions for you, Jake, on the topic while I have you. And I know we're, we're going a while, but this is awesome. One of the things that's really important to me is longevity of where the metadata lives, the NFT yeah. storage lives. We just saw Larva Labs this week, I think, put all of their uh, attributes on chain on Ethereum. I'm not totally sure the specifics. People talk a lot about Arweave. You have these on-chain maxis versus the off-chain. What's your take just on the NFT storage? And second question for you, how are people even sure what they're buying is actually on chain? Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, on that, on that last point, um, I, I actually think there's some websites. I wish I, I knew off the top, but I could look it up for you. Uh, there are websites which, where you can go to check uh, where oh, your nice. NFT assets are, are stored and kind of make a, make a call as to whether you think that's secure enough. And you're absolutely right. This is a, this is kind of this is kind of an issue just in the sense of like good usability right like i actually think that people make a little bit more of a big deal of it because what i'm actually buying when i buy an nft is the blockchain record rather than the jpeg but there's also a case for like storing yeah that's right check my nft.com yeah, there, there's it. also <laughs> there's also um there's also a case for uh for indeed checking it because there's now some nfts that come with like high resolution images versus low resolution images or unlockable content or things like that, right? So um, I think what's happening as we go through this NFT growth, at the same time, what I see is Web3 is maturing. Let me be clear what I mean when I say Web3. When I say Web3, I mean the stack of fully decentralized protocols that gives us digital services. So this is things like computation, storage, um, you know, indexing, like the graph, metadata, like ceramic. Um, and so I think the problem that we have today is that when we store these images, we're going to networks that are sort of in alpha, right? They're not like guaranteed to have longevity. Some of them do like our weave, right? But like, if you just stick something in IPFS, um, you actually don't have strong guarantees that that thing will stick around for forever. Like if you're if you're the main um, sort of IPFS node that's serving those uh, assets, and then you go out of business, you you might well take some NFTs with you. So, but I do think that it's kind of a temporary problem. I think that like when um, networks like Ceramic come out. Uh, and, and like our, our weave has been demonstrating, you'll be able to store the assets with like pretty strong guarantees about like what they are. So that's like content addressing and how long they stick around. And so it's quite possible that someone will owe the networks um, some kind of recurring fee, uh, but that might be you know, if you're the owner of NFT, that might be on you, or you might hire a service that uh, that does that for you on your behalf, right? Um, there are some visible solutions that we can think of. Yeah, it's pretty cool, I guess, to think of like the noun DAO paying 
forever just for storage like that could be a key part but then again on our way if you get that 200 year kind of guarantee um so that kind of makes some sense and like what do you think are the attack vectors there though for nfts like are there any attack vectors on i don't know like attacking where the metadata lives if it's not secure like i don't think we've actually really seen a lot of these attacks or i'm just not really aware of them or even if they're possible but like choosing where you store the data definitely makes a big difference on its, I guess, long-term value and security. Well, content addressing makes attacking the actual data like pretty hard, right? If you if you modify the data in some way or try to make it like invalid in some way, right? Like we'll know immediately just on the on the hashing there. Um, but like, I, I guess uh, I guess my other the other half of that is like, do you think people are more akin to buy? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but like an NFT on Ethereum versus say an NFT on Polkadot or Solana, just because the network, not to go into like security guarantees of each network, but do you think people just culturally, socially think that those networks are more secure because they probably are and they'd rather buy an NFT there? Or how do you think that plays into it? Well, so the, the so let's be very specific. So data for most NFTs is actually not stored on chain, as you noted. Um, like like the actual images are usually stored in a decentralized storage network of some sort or a centralized storage network in some cases. So you're more referring to like the security of the base layer, right? You're saying like, I think, look, I think people have certain affinities to certain base layers and mm -hmm. like that's going to preclude, like if they like that base layer, they might transact in NFTs. But I think like the, today, the, the major factors in why people transact are just sort of situational. Like most people are still on Ethereum when it comes to NFTs. It's hard to move NFTs, it's expensive. Um, there's not a lot of liquidity on other chains today. Like Solana just launched a <laughs> NFT marketplace, but they have something like, you know, a few, maybe like $10 million of volume in, in uh, Soul Punks, right? <laughs> um, so like, the practical reality is that most people are in Ethereum today, but I think that definitely will, um, other networks will aggregate folks over time and those folks will trust the security guarantees there. And I'm hoping also there's a lot of interoperability between those networks. So if you bought a punk, uh, you might be able to move it to a different network or if you bought something on a different network, you might be able to move it on Ethereum, so. Well, I, I was gonna ask you about that. I mean, the, I mean we talked a lot about the different communities for each NFTs. We didn't really talk about the different NFT communities per layer one. It, it's kind of weird to think about because ETH has so much creative juice and power, right? It's, it's just like fun and quirky and, and we see a lot of buy-in, but something like Solana, like an NFT might, you know, Solana is very financially oriented, right? A lot of financial use cases there, a lot of big brain finance, ex Wall Street people building out things like FDX and Serum. Like NFTs may not be an image, but they might be your serum liquidity position or, or, or a liquidity position, something financially oriented. Like, do you think that we'll see a big dichotomy on different L1s NFTs? I mean, on the creative side or the financial side, or, or how do you think about that? Yeah, I, it's very clear to me that networks that are new are using NFTs as a go-to-market mechanism. Like if you look, uh, People have built NFT products on Near. They're, you know, they just launched NFT products on Solana, as I just said. Um, there's a few competing standards on Polkadot for like how how NFTs should should work. 
Um, so it's clear to me that people are recognizing, um, you know, that uh, that NFTs are like kind of the early mainstream adoption mechanism, and they are building for that. Whether that alone will be enough, right, to to take them to hegemony in the in the base layer world <laughs> remains to be to be seen. Um, but I do think that most base layers will have that functionality. I do think that when you're talking about interoperability bridges, they do tend to support multiple kinds of assets, fungible and non-fungible. And so I, I think there'll be a concentration of NFTs on Ethereum, but it's also like super expensive and you need, um, you know, you need scalability technologies to, to transact in bulk. Um, and so I think, I do think we'll see movement across chains. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And I guess switching gears a little bit, um, regulation is obviously like at the forefront of everybody's mind with the infrastructure bill and everything going on in, in Washington. I always get a little, I guess I just don't have a great take on regulation with NFTs. Like the financialization aspects, clearly you start to wade into regulation matters, things like fractionalization, stuff like that. But on the other hand, you also get millions of people around the world who could potentially influence legitimate crypto laws and, and legitimate adoption in a way that DeFi may not have had in the past. Um, how do you think about regulation with NFTs? I think, I think in the NFT space, regulation is probably a bit more straightforward than elsewhere, um, just because there's more analogies to things that happened in the past. You know, this is like property versus like, I don't know, derivatives yeah. uh, or something like that. So there, there is a view here that, that some of these assets could be uh, just better understood, right? So my understanding, like I'm not a lawyer, let me be clear, um, but you know, my understanding is that there are, uh, there is some interest on the regulatory side around KYC requirements for, for NFTs. And I do think you see some of the platforms um, that, are, that have consumer go-to-markets kind of speak to that by requiring KYC. Um, don't have much color on, you know, any fractionalization issues. I think it, it just kind of remains to be, to be seen. And there's a lot of different perspectives there, but no clarity at all. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think NFTs will, will probably be in a better position for, for clarity of regulation. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't have too much to add. I, I definitely agree with you. And I guess just zooming out, you know, after our conversation, Jake, like you've been through more cycles in crypto than than most. I mean, you've been here twice as long as I've been, much longer than I think other people have been. And that kind of, one, speaks to your character. You're here to build, uh, which is incredible. But also, you know, you've seen the booms, the busts, the adoptions, the lack of adoption, stuff like that. How do you think about where we are right now in the NFT space, given there's obviously a lot of hype, obviously a lot of interest, but obviously clear building, but you also have people aping into brand new plays with absolutely no understanding of what they are. Like, yep. where do you think we are in that cycle? Yeah. I'm an open market capitalist uh, in that sense. So I like, so, so let me just say this. So again, I think we've talked about how NFTs are really the first sort of uh, area of blockchain to get early mainstream adoption. So we're, we're there, right? I think in February that we saw critical mass, we saw NFTs on Saturday Night Live, 
you know, we saw brands taking a look. And I think what that has done is it's kicked off a corporate R&D process. It's kicked off the interest of celebrities and, and brands and influencers. And so there's a certain like product cycle there where like, you know, 12 to 18 months from February, we should probably see um, a lot of like more corporate uh, strategies kind of come to market. Um, I think like, um, what, what is really interesting now is, uh, and I tweeted about this like earlier this morning is that we're, it really does feel like we're about to go into kind of an NFT bull market. And this is coming on the back of this combination of like this early critical mass of adoption and attention, but also these like technologies that we've discussed that are really like getting people into the game and letting people transact. Now, I wanna say a few words about the speculation that you alluded to. So let's rewind back to the ICO boom of 2017. We all kind of lived through it. We are well aware that there were good actors, there were bad actors, there were um, projects that succeeded, there were projects that made promises that didn't succeed, right? But what is like the overall impact of the ICO boom? Is it overall positive or is it overall negative? And my position on that is that that event created a ton of capital that got recycled into the space. And moreover, it, it got recycled into projects that like traditional professional investors would probably never fund, right? So like the, the one property of this open uh, technology that is so involved with capital formation and moving money and moving value is that it democratizes capital in a way that funds things that we otherwise wouldn't and we would not be a $2 trillion asset class today, I would argue, if we didn't have that reinvestment from 2017. If you remember, there was like this bear, this brutal bear market from 2018 to 2019. It was not, it was not fun. fun. But what happened during that bear market is that we've built the infrastructure that now in 2021 is allowing wonderful, experienced, amazing entrepreneurs to go to market and actually have enough tools to go to market. And so when I look at the experimentation and the exuberance and the you know, speculation that's happening in the NFT space, I know that some of these series are inevitably gonna trade off, right? But it's, it's also part of that natural process where we're experimenting and we're seeing how far we can, we can take some of these experiments and some of them will work and some of them will not work. But what we absolutely will have as a result of this process is a reinvestment cycle into the NFT world. And that makes me, you know, as the first true vertical of, of blockchain to go mainstream, that makes me extremely bullish on that vertical, even more bullish than anything. I love that. The reinvestment cycle. I mean, can't you argue that the DeFi gains is kind of the reinvestment cycle into NFTs? Or would that be too short term? I mean, I think, I think that also played a role in it, right? Yeah. Um, I think the the reinvestment from ICO 2017 um, boom went into DeFi. DeFi, 
as we talked about, right, it collapsed the time to liquidity for tokens and caused this like liquidity mining, uh, you know, DeFi summer, we call it 2020, right? That in turn created a bunch of like angel investors and, and people who are like um, trying, trying to figure out like different assets to put their money in. And of course that included NFTs, right? Um, some of the, the biggest sales started to happen like mid to late last year, right? And after the, after the, uh, the DeFi summer. So I think you're absolutely right, Tom. Um, what, what we're seeing now is like, like I just keep reading over and over on Twitter of like people being like, I just made some, you know, fortuitous or, or intelligent investments in the NFT space and it's changed my life. And so those people are much more likely to pay attention to the blockchain space, much more likely to reinvest. Uh, Punk4156, who I wouldn't say is a run of the mill kind of person, but he's, he's the founder uh, of one of the founders of NounsDAO. He tweeted the other day that he has made a 2 million percent return since starting wow. to invest his college uh, loan in early 2000s. Oh That's my God. Over 15 wow. to 20 years, but um, that fixed rate Sally let uh, May three percent really paid off. <laughs> yeah. Right, and I, I, I'd be willing to bet that like most of that was in crypto, and a lot of that was in is in the NFT space. And you better believe that you know some of the benefit that he gets from from Nounsdow, he's going to reinvest in in this area. So, you know, it's it's data points like that um, that make. How do me you really not not to get you off there, Jake? But like I always see that like, you know, some random guy made a million bucks on Twitter or doing something in four days. And I, I used to get um, a little concerned, but then I understood, you know, it's a new market. We've talked about the exuberance, new, you know, we're building something totally new and powerful. The other thing to discuss though, is like the gains to people like that who are discovering it is used to be the gains to mega funds on Wall Street that people never really heard about. Um, so, I mean, now like you're, kind of democratizing the upside in these things because you know it's not some pension fund or some 20 billion dollar fund reaping all the benefits but you have the guy you just described you know and guy and girl number one to ten thousand that are kind of reaping the benefits of the new cultural movement i guess yeah um absolutely i mean i listen i think i think it's been an incredibly democratizing uh area in general i mean if I if I rewind back to 2015 when I was starting Coin Fund, like coming from you know technology, like and looking at this technology, my first thought was like, can we make this a fund that a lot of people can participate in? And of course, my dreams were quickly dashed by lawyers. <laughs> um, it's but, still hard today. Yeah, but, but it's and it's still hard to say. But but we have made enormous strides in that direction. So if you look in, if you look at what the Lao is doing, what Flamingo is doing, uh, what some of these decentralized DAOs are doing, um, it's all kind of headed that way. And by the way, it, this is so interesting to me. Like the fact that the NFT space is creating a reason for DAOs is totally unexpected, even for me, who's been sitting here trying to figure out like for months, like, okay, how do DAOs go mainstream? Like what creates a proliferation and critical mass of DAOs? And what we're seeing is, well, 
nouns DAO plus party DAO create a DAO every day, basically, right? So there's going to be at least 365 <laughs> new DAOs in the next year just from that you know, set of projects. And some people criticize that, by the way, and they said, um, you know, we're too loose in how and what we're calling a DAO. You know, and, and they're not wrong. I mean, if you look at Vitalik's definition of a, of a DAO, um, it's, um, it's fairly general, right? It's, we, can, we can find it. But it was basically, he was like an autonomous organization that still requires the hiring of people to execute some of the things that it can't do. I don't, like I, I don't really see an issue there, though. I mean, if there's a DAO, just where you and I and the people make decisions when we have to. I mean, if there's if me and you just make a decision once a year, why can't there? Why can't me and you be in ten DAOs owning ten different nouns? Well, there's this interesting philosophic disagreement that, like, for example, if if um, if we come together in today's auction at Party DAO, right, and our Party DAO loses the auction, then in effect, this is a DAO that has existed for 24 hours, and then it dissipated. It's true. And so, yeah. you know, but to me, that actually makes it even more of a DAO because. Like when I think about DAOs versus corporations, I think of corporations as something that, you know, continuously wants to grow and, you know, and expand into different businesses and build value for its shareholders. And it's just like this cancerous process that like never is satisfied with where it is. Whereas I think of DAOs as a very like precision scalpel-like instrument to perform a task that you need to perform as a swarm and that task might be like participating in an auction for 24 hours but hey you know if it didn't work out like that's okay we can shut down this company and go do something else um but that's no, not that's, that's awesome framing no no it's yeah. great it's great framing i mean it's very it ha they have very specific use cases they exist for the life and then they're easy to shut down um easy to dissipate whereas a corporation just funnels money into red tape and, and bureaucracy, <laughs> which we've both seen. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that, that's, I like that color. I, I also, you know, just last thought on that is when you work in blockchain enough and you think about capitalism and how everyone kind of associates the process of monopolization as this sort of like natural consequence of capitalism. They're like, the reason why you have these giant big tech corporations they're trying to take over everything is because capitalism. What you kind of start to realize is that it's actually not so much, I mean, it is a little bit of capitalism, but it's mostly the operating system upon which that capitalism works. It's because it's really costly to start a company and it's really costly to shut it down, that you have incentives to like, grow these big corps, right? Um, and if you suddenly have a technology where you can be very efficient about that, you kind of create a very different set of incentives. You're, um, you're totally right. I like and, that. And, oh, sorry, Jacob. And, and just, just the last, last, last thought on that, I was because I was just listening to the podcast with, um, with Cooper Turley, where he said the other day, he said, you know, I'm a member of 87 DAOs. So he's essentially like an Cooper's employee... A machine. <laughs> yeah. he's an employee of 87 like pseudo corps right insane to think about i mean on wall street you couldn't even have a twitter like you know, like, you, you, know you couldn't even do uh, pet projects or hobbies and now you have people with part of 100 different DAOs. it's incredible to think about it's kind of wild because people are being born and entering like the DAO workforce without ever having a job or without ever having to 
clock in or wear a suit or anything. It's kind of weird to think about. Um, but maybe we're yeah. just getting older. <laughs> so Tom, like, tell us like a little bit about what you think about this whole thing. Uh, and I mean, the NFT space and maybe DAOs as an extension. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you throwing it back. Um, I definitely think it's a little hyped. Um, I definitely think we're getting a little bit where you start to question, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of work being done. I mean, we've made a lot of public and private bets. Um, you know, we've, we've done fractional, we've done nameless, we've done a bunch of others that will release soon, but there's definitely a lot of building going on. Definitely a lot of legitimate builders too. People that are not here for ICO money, people that aren't here just to make money, but people who really love the idea of on-chain ownership and artwork and yield generating assets, like whether it be Axie land or whether it be other things. And to your earlier points, there's a lot of great teams building the hard things too. Like things like Upshot and synthetic NFTs and people are starting to answer like the hard questions, which is awesome. So I'm pretty bullish on the NFT space in general. I just, I get a little irked out when I see the 12,000 drop with the 45,000th NFT of the, the week. But, you know, when I see things that had incredible community generating events, like the last two weeks we saw Parallel drop its trading cards. And I mean, the response over Twitter was incredible. I mean, people are out there like killing themselves to complete decks. And I mean, you know, it's insane to watch, but like that stuff is, is really nice to see. And I mean, that's different than like when Gods Unchained launched because, you know, you could play Gods Unchained right now. You can't play Parallel, but yet people are more interested in Parallel, probably because of speculation. But no, no, I'm, I'm definitely very bullish, but I do think it's going to be a, a long run. I think we have to answer questions like, you know, storage, maybe a bit more, we got to add the financialization aspects a bit more, but I love seeing these teams. And, and like you, I, I just love getting a new deck and, and reading through the stories and, and, you know, jumping down and, and investing because it's fun. It's exciting. And it kind of feels like early DeFi um, to your earlier point. Yeah. And, and that's fair. And listen, we're, this is all like cyclical, right? So <laughs> that everyone gets super excited about something. They, they tend to go overboard and there's no shortage of capital in, in, in crypto, both from traditional VCs and, and angels and, and some of these like even anons or whales that, that fund things around the space. So, you know, so you're bound to have these cycles. I'm happy we're in an up cycle versus a down cycle. Agreed. Uh, to be Always fair, yeah. I, I, I much like the, the sign curve that we've had since like the beginning of 20 to now versus like what we had 18 to 20. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I'm having fun. The, the founder potential is different though. Like when I meet NFT founders, like to your point, you saw like 50 marketplace decks and, and I have two, I agree, but the founders on the NFT side are like definitely, uh, I mean, it's a product of the space that they're in, like the NFT space, but they are really like creatively driven, very passionate people. Like the DeFi founders are awesome. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them are very like mathematical goal oriented here's our checklist but the nft founders are very viscerally like we want this on chain like jimmy from nameless great guy like you know he has that vision and like you know that stuff is is pretty powerful too so it definitely meets meeting the teams i think versus the decks but to your point it's it's helpful nice yeah i i um i think that the nft founders really uh nailed the social capital aspects of some of this because they're coming from from nfts and they sort of feel it 
and we've seen a few like congrats on fractional like I, I thought that was um an awesome way that they kind of came into the market very quickly and really brought a community together very fast and are now serving uh, as infrastructure to things like party DAO and and and, uh, and innovating in that space so it's like absolutely awesome to see um you know and and at the same time like I also, as an investor, and you probably feel this too, like we as investors have a higher level view of the trends that founders are operating in. And a lot of times founders are very like heads down and into, you know, they know their project really, really well. They know their competitors, they know their friends, but they're not uh, as often plugged into like where everything is going. Like yeah, one and well, a half it, years it, from now. It's crazy you bring that up. And I hate to be that guy like saying it, but why not? Like one of my first questions for most NFT projects are like, are your founders super well known in the community or do they know the top five or 10 people that will use your product? Because like the community bootstrapping side is just, it's so difficult. Like not to bring it back to fractional again, but like Andy was super well known, you know, with within NBA Top Shots and within MakerDAO. So it was very easy for him to kind of get the community going. And in hindsight, it's obviously a benefit. But not being fame, like not having community fame or buy-in in the NFT side is like a death sign. I mean, if you're not known, it's weird. In DeFi, you could be not known. Um, but the NFT side, it's hard to build something without being popular. Yeah, which is tough. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And, and you know what? Like maybe, maybe as, a, as a final thought on how uh, people compete, in, in blockchain and, and really in the NFT space as well. I, it's been the thought that there's these two kinds of sets of customers, right? There's the crypto native customer who wants to use MetaMask and has ether and maybe is a whale and can spend a bunch of money, right? And, and only wants everything to be decentralized and on chain and in the form of a DAO. And then there's the mainstream user who has absolutely no cultural affinity to the underlying base layer um, just wants a product that works, wants to log in with his email or Google account, right? Doesn't have ether, doesn't have minimal. And so we've seen founders speak very effectively to both audiences. So like OpenSea, which frankly has something like 98% of the GMV right now in the market is generating that GMV on the back of crypto native avatar series if you you know we looked at the metrics a, a, a little while a couple of weeks ago it was something like you know 28 out of the 30 top things were like avatar series that was being traded and by the way 60 percent of everything is axie um and then you know and then on the other side you have folks like uh nba top shot and, and dapper labs who've taken this position like hey you know we're just going to build the mainstream user experience and then they were able to convert a bunch, like a niche, like basketball fans, right, into their product, which is a blockchain, which is like unheard of. They had a like one day, it's my go-to metric for NBA Top Shot. They had like one day of like $38 million revenue, God. right? Um, selling- it's crazy bootstrapping the other way around. <laughs> yeah, so, selling moments, right? And then they can take that audience and, and sort of like, you know, teach them about some of the value propositions of being in a blockchain. Like you can take this moment out and use it in a game or something like that. Um, and the last thing to say is, I don't see that like flow uh, prioritizing bridge building to Ethereum that much. And I think the thinking is, yeah, people will build bridges, it's fine, but it's, 
you know, we're building for a set of customers that will just use us because we have great experience. And so historically there's been these like two audiences. It's the people that will bridge the gap between those audiences that I think will win big. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, there's still a bunch of work to do, right? It's interesting. They're not prioritizing the bridges. That was always like the selling point for every other layer one for a while, but it's cool to see people focus more on their own community than to bridge to existing ones kind of, yes. And, and yeah. Jake, I'm sorry, last question for you. Cause I forgot it earlier. The, the royalty aspect of NFT drops is, is really interesting to me. Um, yes. You know, being able to reward a creator in perpetuity for their work. There's a lot to go into here, but can you kind of just give your color on, yes. you know, how powerful that is? It is absolutely powerful. So I have, so first of all, I mentioned in the beginning, I run a digital art gallery called first edition.xyz. Um, in that art gallery, I launched a, a very good friend of mine who I grew up with, whose name is Dan, uh, in an art series called Priority Slaps. You could see it on the website uh, if you go. Dan grew up as a, he went to RISD Ryan School of Design. He's been like a tremendously talented artist like all his life, but he's never been able to like monetize through being, through selling art, right? And so um, we changed that dramatically by selling this series. I think it's, I think it's just really cool art. Um, and what Dan gets from that is not just the revenue from, you know, selling, selling the works, it's also the lifetime royalty stream from the secondary trading of those works. And so we, in many ways, it was, this was like a total game changer for him as, as a art monetizing creator, right? What you see is that in the traditional world, there are laws about royalties that no one ever follows or enforces. And what you can do is you can have very strong social consensus and do this on chain. And it's been already so culturally ingrained in the crypto art space that like basically no crypto artist will, will even entertain, you know, some kind of mint if there isn't like a secondary royalty stream, right? Now the problem technologically with this is that there is no global standard for royalties, right? So if you if you created a marketplace, you probably like, you know, entered a royalty functionality into your smart contracts. But what that means is someone issues their NFT somewhere else, and then transacts on you, like, you know, those royalties aren't transferable across uh, different platforms. And so they're actually are a couple of proposals for Ethereum-wide royalty standards like EIPs, but they haven't really you know, taken effect yet or, or been accepted. Going, I think they're going through that process. And this is yet another reason why having kind of a predominant infrastructural protocol like, like wearable protocol is so important because you the openness of it can allow other people to plug into the royalties. And really, just you know, get that royalty mechanism uh, adopted as as widely as possible. The status quo that we have today is that if you've minted something on Super Rare, then someone has to transact on Super Rare for you to get that royalty. If you minted something on Rareable, you got to transact on Rareable to get that royalty. There's some proprietary agreements right now between networks. Like for example, I'm an Artblocks creator. And the secondary royalties, uh, which occur on OpenSea mostly, 
they travel back to me through a series of human agreements between those companies. <laughs> and the dirty secret of, of the blockchain space, this advanced technology for distributed ledgers, is that they track those royalties in spreadsheets. <laughs> wow. Damn. <laughs> Man, right? what are we even building for? Jeez. So, so anyway, that's just to underscore the importance of getting a royalty standard out there. And then culturally, it is a game changer for creators and it is an incredibly uh, important feature um, for this, you know, uh, non-fungible infrastructure. It's incredible, Jake. And last question for you: What is, I guess, the most unlaw or most specific NFT project you're excited about that hasn't launched yet or, or is planning to launch? Obviously, nothing private. But is there anything you're really excited about um, within a project or a new project within, say, the next couple of months? Um, I am, I'm not going to name a specific project. It's just, I, I just don't, uh, I don't follow projects that way. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly what's going to launch, but I'll tell you the category of projects, um, that I am excited about. I am excited about the category of projects that go beyond, you know, simple sort of collectibles issuance and start to integrate crypto economic mechanisms. The first such thing we talked about was nouns now, but there's so many other things that are possible. There are things like charged particles, there's Avagachi, uh, there are um, ways that you can tokenize like websites and, and locations, right? Like things that are starting to combine the real world nature, um, with, with the NFT nature, things that are starting to put forward mechanisms that aggregate attention, community, social capital, things that integrate DeFi or liquidity mechanisms, like those things I think will perform better because they're new compared to some of the vanilla, you know, copycat series that, were, that are coming out onto the market. No, I totally agree. Jake, it's awesome having somebody who's been around crypto for so long and still building and ton of credit to you. I, I just straight up love seeing that. And then two, somebody who's just so engaged, not only investing in the NFT space, but like actually building themselves here and understanding the contracts and the drops, getting their friends involved. I mean, doing your own artwork, like really interesting. I mean, even the, the way you curate art is super cool. So I really appreciate you staying on. Uh, for this long. And it's incredible to have someone on for so long. First long form podcast we've done. So Jake, thank you so much, man. And for everyone, we'll, we'll link Jake in the show notes and everything he mentioned as well. Thanks, Tom. Like my, I'm absolutely honored to to talk with you and you've asked some great questions. I, I honestly think we, we exhausted most of the, uh, the, the really like hot topics that are, that are on my mind. And some of them you know, like the DAO interactions with the NFT space, they're literally, you know, been watching this over the last couple of days. So this is like the, you know, the most up-to-date kind of thoughts that, that we have, um, I think. And so I really appreciate you asking those questions. Of course, man. It's, it's cool just to see the projects in real time. I never even heard of Nouns DAO until you mentioned it, but it's really, it's only 14 days old, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's interesting to see. Jake, thank the you so much for coming so on. fast. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking time on Saturday. Before we go, 
We'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you can visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0, and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain, offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today.